Hey, this morning, it, it, it's, it's a pleasure to sit back and um, to sit under the word with you today, uh, Scott Berthel. I'm going to pass the baton off to him, and he's going to do our teaching today. So, so blessed as Scott comes. And so, Scott, thank you, buddy. Started going up before my cue, because I said to Jerry, I'm excited. But when Jerry and I talked a few weeks ago, and, and he invited me, and, and we were looking at possible dates and possible topics. I knew that October 1st worked well on my calendar, but also knew closing out a series on marriage did not feel comfortable. And we were commiserating about the fact that it doesn't feel comfortable. He felt the same thing. You know, who are we to stand in front of a group of people and talk about marriage? And so I immediately went to my panel of experts. Uh, those would be the middle school kids in my hallway to find out a little bit about marriage. And I asked, over the past few weeks, I've asked a lot of middle school kids, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, I've asked them two questions. Do you think you're going to get married someday? And they look at me like, and at least in our world, of, of my world of middle school, uh, marriage uh, seems to be alive and well because every kid I asked said, yeah, I think I'm going to. And there was always 100% response rate on that one. And then I'd ask kids, what's one quality or characteristic you want in a future spouse, or you think maybe God wants in a future spouse. And this is what I love about middle school kids. I had so many fabulous answers, honesty, loyalty. I want a spouse who's trustworthy, kind, caring, patient, nice, a lot of great stuff. Of course, middle school kids being middle school kids, I got some interesting answers as well, as you might imagine. Uh, somebody setting the bar a little bit lower said, competent. Uh, I could see that in Proverbs 31. Yeah, that was a little guy who said he didn't root it there in Proverbs 30. Uh, ambitious was one. Uh, passionate. The kid who gave me that answer is one of the lowest key kids. And when he said passionate, I thought, what? help me understand it. I love this. He said, I, I want to marry someone who's enthusiastic about life and wants to keep growing. I thought, that is awesome. That is so cool. And of course, middle school kids being middle school, I met the kid who said hot uh, in response to that. <laughs> This past week, I was at a conference with 1,800 some educators from across the country, uh, and I'm not going to see the vast majority of these people again, so I thought, I'm going to ask them too. I didn't ask all 1,800, but it's an interesting conversation starter in a breakout session or a breakfast. I'd go, hey, can I ask you something? It's out of left field. And I'd ask them the same question. If you're not married, whether you are married, if you had to do it again, what's one quality or characteristic you would value in a spouse? And I had a lot, I didn't have passionate and competent and hot from the adults, but I had m most of those other significant answers. In fact, with adults, probably the most co common things were trustworthy, loyal, honest. That was the theme among the adults I talked to as well. Nobody, and I know this doesn't surprise you, but I actually wanted to walk through that to prove what I thought people would say. And that is nobody says, oh, I, I would hope to marry someone who will be disloyal or unfaithful, or nobody sets out and goes, yeah, I'm really hoping to marry someone who will be adulterous. That sounds good to me. People don't do that. And that's what makes this story that we're going to look at this morning all the more strange, all the more stunning. And I realize it's not an obvious one to close out a series on marriage. Yet if you think back to what Jerry has taught us over the last few weeks, that the purpose of marriage is first and foremost to reveal God. It's to put God and the gospel on display. That's the purpose of marriage. He taught us in the second week that the key or the secret to a healthy marriage is the kind of sacrificial love 
that Jesus shows us as his bride, as the church. And then last week, that the gift, the good and perfect gift, as James calls it, uh, every gift of God is good and perfect, but the gift of sex and sexual intimacy, it is designed for the context of marriage between a man and a woman, and that's where it belongs. And although Hosea and the story we're about to look at would not seem to be an obvious fit to close out a marriage series, this book affirms everything we've been taught in the past few weeks. And so I want you to see that this morning, as well as three other things from this book. And so there's three words that I'm going to zero in on as we look at Hosea this morning. The three words, if you want to write them down like now, if you're a note taker, one is equip, two is anger, and three is harvest. Equip, anger, and harvest is what I want us to look at this morning. And I want to begin just by looking at this marriage, because as I said, nobody sets out to marry someone who is disloyal or unfaithful, and yet that is who God called Hosea to marry, as Jerry read for us a few minutes ago. So I want to begin just by going back and looking at the second verse of chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke, let me get there. And this is a little bit smaller font here, and I apologize for that. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of harlotry, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. I didn't check this in the Bible, but I'm pretty sure this is probably the only verse where the word harlotry appears three times in one sentence. And so right away, we're going, wait a minute. Uh, this, if the point of all marriage is to reveal God, and this one is clearly about revealing God, he's saying something right here at the outset that your marriage, Hosea, is going to be a story or a narrative that is going to reveal something about my relationship with the northern kingdom of Israel. These two narratives are intertwined. It's going to reveal me. This kind of makes people back up a little bit or maybe even back up a lot and go, wait a minute. What kind of God does this? This is a God like no other, and I don't know if I think that's good. Because what kind of a holy God would ask a man to marry a woman who will prove to be unfaithful? And then you get into the names, and I will come back and talk about Gomer's name, which means to complete or finish or to bring something to a sudden end. Her father's name, uh, as you can see maybe on the screen, her father's name, she's daughter of Diblaim. Uh, his name means two cakes. You go, what in the world is that? It comes from a Hebrew word that means two cakes. But I just want to focus on the three kids' names for a moment. Because as if it's not bad enough to say you're going to marry a woman who will prove unfaithful, and she has a son, and they're instructed to name the first son Jezreel, which is a nice enough name in its meaning, God plants or God sows. But we're told right there in the text, the whole point of that, the valley of Jezreel was an agricultural valley and really important to the land, uh, literally, for growing food, but it was also really strategically important. And we're told right here in the text that God is going to break, basically break the back of the northern kingdom of Israel in a military battle. They're going to lose and lose big time. Not a great name to have for a kid. And then a daughter, Lo Ruhama. The name means no mercy, not to be pitied. And then the second son, Loami, uh, means not my people. And so again, these kind of add to the sense of tension and disbelief in this story. You're going, what kind of a God would do this? Is this for real? And I just want to say real quickly, I think for two reasons. 
that this is a true story. There have been a lot of debate about the book of Hosea over the years by biblical scholars. We're not even going to talk about people outside the church who might look at something like this at the moment, but we will come back and say, what would people outside the world of biblical knowledge think about this story? But just within the church, a lot of discussion about, is this for real? Was maybe Hosea just writing a vision, or was he writing an allegory and just sort of saying, using this to point it out? And I would say to you briefly for two reasons, I think it is a true story, that historical event, that God called this man to marry a woman like this. You could disagree with me on these two, and that'd be fine, because I still think some of the points are there to be made, but for two reasons. Number one, God often asked his prophets to do some extremely difficult things. You can go to Isaiah 20. I'm not going to take you there right now, but if you would ever flip and just mark that or jot that in your notes, and if you want to go read Isaiah 20, God says to Isaiah in that particular book, hey, I need you to take off the sackcloth from around your hips and the sandals from your feet because you are going to go around naked. And he says, not for 24 hours or not for a week, but for three years, you're going to do that. That's difficult. That's challenging. Ezekiel 24, God says to Ezekiel in in chapter 24, uh, I'm going to remove in one blow the desire from your eyes, and here's how you're going to have to deal with it, Ezekiel. If you go to Ezekiel 24, that phrase, the desire from, of your eyes, he's talking about his wife. I'm going to take your wife. And we find out in Ezekiel 24 that God does this. He takes Ezekiel's wife. She dies. And God has said to him, you are not going to be able to mourn in the, the usual normal way. That is hugely difficult. I can't even, when I'm just trying to imagine what that would be like. God calls his prophets to do difficult things. Jeremiah says this, if I've got it up here. Yeah. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. This is actually in a section where God is speaking through Jeremiah about false prophets. And the first one he's talking about here is referencing a false prophet. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, meaning it's just his. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth. And notice God does not say, let the prophet who has my word speak my truth. He just says, let him who has my word speak my word in truth. For what does straw have in common with grain? Straw is a reference to the false prophets. Grain, which can actually feed people and be nutritious, is a reference to the word of truth. I think a second reason this story is for real is because I think we all, we often think of prophets as people whose job is to predict the future. And that's certainly one part of the role of the biblical prophet. There was a degree of you're predicting the future and giving prophecy. But I think another element to that role that's clear through Scripture is a prophet was called to speak and to live out God's truth. And I think we could probably all agree that is incumbent upon us today as we trust Jesus with our life. It is to speak and to live out God's truth. I think we all have a responsibility to do that. And for that reason, I think this is a true story and not just an allegory. If it were just fiction or if God calling Isaiah to walk around nearly naked, he wasn't completely naked for those three years, but just about and would have been in the eyes of the ancient people to whom he was speaking. If that's just fiction, or if what happened to Ezekiel is just fiction, do you see how that makes it easier for Scott Berthel to disconnect from those and to go, that's just a story, I don't really have to... God hasn't called me to do those things. 
But he does call us to do some challenging and difficult things to walk with him in this world. And my hope is, as we look at the next step of Hosea's marriage, and we're going to zero in on that word equip, my hope is that you will be inspired, as I've been inspired, by the depth of Hosea's obedience and how absolutely beautiful it is as he pursues this marriage. So we're going to take a look, if you want to flip forward to chapter 3. As you go through chapter 1, it's clear that God is saying, Hosea, you're going to do this marriage because I'm going to knit together your marriage and this story about the northern kingdom of Israel. That's who Hosea was prophesying to and dealing with. He said, I'm going to knit these together. Your marriage is going to be symbolic of everything that's going on with the northern kingdom. And if you take time at some point this week to read chapter 2, you'll realize it's all about this cycle of sin and judgment and restoration, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But when you get to chapter 3, if I can get us there, this is where Hosea comes back to the actual story again. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Let me stop there with verse 1. <laughs> Laugh it because it is good. <laughs> That's as good as you've got. They love raisin cakes. That's the problem. Yes. So here's the picture. There's so much that is not told in that single verse. So we're going to fill in some gaps for you that we can, I think, reasonably suppose. God calls Hosea to marry Gomer. And he says, you're going to marry this woman. There, again, a lot of debate. Was she, was she a prostitute when he married her? Did she... Uh, you know, just all these different questions that scholars have raised over the years. And whether she was or if she simply began having an affair or affairs plural once they were married, uh, it appears that once they began having kids, because again, go back to chapter 1, verse 2, God says you're going to have children of harlotry, so it would seem to be that she was unfaithful and the whole time they're having the three kids. And so we get to this point where we know this woman has been doing all these things, and Hosea is instructed to go after her, and basically saying, the sense is, she's left him. She's off doing what she's doing, and he's told, you got to go back and get her, and then you go, and let me just say this about the raisin cakes, and here's what God is saying again. He's interweaving the story of the marriage and the story of the people. This whole reference to loving raisin cakes, raisin cakes were a sacrifice to the Canaanite storm god, Baal. We're going to talk a little bit more about Baal in a few moments, but that's the reference there. Interesting, again, when I, one of the things I love about Scripture is there are certain things where I'll just hit them and I'll go, why is that in there? And it's all there for a reason. God's inspiration is 100% reasonable and valid in terms of why something's here. So back when I'm looking at chapter 1, Gomer uh, daughter of Deblaim, thinking, why, why name the dad? I know that was a common thing, but you go back to a few slides ago when I said what Deblaim means, it comes from a Hebrew word that means two cakes. And even her father's name is, in a sense, referencing the idol worship of Baal and the kind of sacrifice that was brought. And so when God says these people love these raisin cakes, he's referencing that and saying, we got to rescue them. So then, 
as we go on. Uh, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Again, we're not told how this happens, but it appears that Gomer is now for sale at a slave auction. That not only has she gone out, probably left her husband, had a, at least one, but probably numerous affairs, she has fallen to the point of being up for sale as a slave. And we determine that because the 15 shekels of silver and the homer and a half of barley, a homer and a half of barley, I know uh, most of you already knew this walking in this morning, uh, that's equal to 15 shekels of silver roughly as well in their economy back in the day. Uh, 30 shekels of silver is the, was back in the Old Testament times. That was the going price for a slave, a maidservant. And so we have this picture of a woman who has hit rock bottom. Now, this is going to be the imagination of Scott Berthel. This is not in the text. This is not in Scripture. But I just want you to think for a moment about what this would have looked like to have a woman who is in some way probably bound at this slave auction. She's probably, uh, I thought it was, and again, I just thank God for our worship team, the work these guys put in and invest. I love talking to John last week and saying, here's the big picture, but man, you pray, you figure it out this morning singing about uh, the fact that chains are broken because more than likely she was chained or bound in some way at this slave auction gomer and i can picture her seeing hosea coming and wondering uh is this it is he going to sort of twist the knife is he going to sort of say i told you so is he going to say is this where he's finally going to say to me i divorce you that's all he had to say back in that time a practice which you can still find in some places in the Middle East today. A husband would simply have to say, I'm done with you. And I picture her seeing him coming and wondering what's next and watching, again, in my mind's eye, as he probably points to her and says that one and counts out his 15 shekels of silver, lugs up the homer and a half of barley or grain, and sacrifices to buy her out of bondage. Amazing picture of a marriage revealing God and putting the gospel on display. It sounds a whole lot like another story I've heard about a man who gave all to buy me out of bondage. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up watching Andy Griffith. And anybody else, any other fans of there of Andy? And there was a character on that show uh, named Gomer Pyle, who eventually had his own spinoff. How many of you know Gomer well? In my All right. In my family... Uh, Gomer Pyle, we lived my whole life in Minnesota and Michigan. I thought everybody in the South talked like Gomer Pyle. And everybody in the South, and I'm sorry, I was stereotyping as a kid, uh, had that same level of uh, intellect uh, that Gomer showed. In my family, calling a sibling a Gomer was not a compliment. And uh, sometimes, and I don't know which one of them did it to me at one point, they said, oh, you're such a Gomer. 
and it was a, a term of mockery referencing Gomer Pyle, U.S. Marine Corps uh, Corporal. I've realized as I've read this again, studied this again, that when one of my siblings once said, you're such a Gomer, in a very different way, the accuracy of that statement in the biblical sense, I am Gomer, and you are Gomer, this Gomer. Uh, every person outside the doors of this building is Gomer, in the sense of we have had a Hosea in the form of Jesus Christ who sacrificed to buy us out of bondage. The purpose of all marriage is to put God on display. Even this strange and stunning marriage where God said to this man, you're going to marry a woman who will prove to be unfaithful. And he did it to prove a point about the kingdom of Israel. He did it to prove a point about the depth of his love for you and I as well. Strange and stunning and scandalous and absolutely beautiful and life-saving. But the point that I want you to see out of all that is the word equip. That's my first word. Because in this, Hosea is equipped to do this. As you go on and, and read the rest of this really brief chapter 3, he says, Then I said to her, You'll stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. And again, there's a lot that's not said in that text. But when I think about how difficult this would have been for Hosea to go and reach out to this woman who has done this, he was equipped by God to do that. And he was enabled to do that. I'm choosing the word equipped for a very significant reason. It's a word that does not show up in English in a lot in the Bible. Uh, one place that I find is Hebrews chapter 13. This verse is not going to be on the screen. But at the end of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, it says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, listen to this. He said, Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's this prayer, this blessing that God would equip us in every good thing to do his will. The word in Greek, equip right here, it means to complete, to bring to conclusion, to bring to finish. Do you remember Gomer's name? It means to complete, to finish. And it's interesting, the other nuance of her name is to bring something to a sudden stop, which is exactly what Hosea did the moment he bought her out. He said, you will be with me for many days. That's a phrase in Hebrew that means days that will continue to grow into more days. There's this sense of ongoing time. It's a beautiful picture. I do want to say one thing. The purpose of all marriage is to reveal God. And this story, I trust and hope and pray, will inspire us to realize God can equip us to do that. But if you are in, or you know someone who is in, a marriage that is abusive in some way, emotionally, physically, whatever, I do want to be cautious that this text would never be put to somebody in such a way that they would think they need to remain in that setting without help. And so I do want to just say that clearly. Uh, not that I think that, 
of anybody in here. I'm not, I don't want anybody to think, is he saying that because of he thinks they're or they're, no. But I do think it needs to be said because that to me would be an inappropriate twisting of scripture um, to say, well, if Hosea had to do it with that, I just got to maybe shut up and pull up my bootstraps and hang in here and trust that God, you know, part of God equipping you to let truth be revealed in such a marriage like that is to get the help you need or to be someone who could help someone in that setting or situation. Which brings me to word number two, uh, anger. And not because I'm going to talk about abusive marriages, but there is another part of Hosea that is strange and stunning and actually kind of unnerving. And it deals with God's anger. Now, it's interesting to me, you know, we, we sang this morning that God is rich in love. He's slow to anger. If you look on the back of your bulletin, memory verse for this week from Psalm 145, it says that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. I agree 100%. We've just seen how that's lived out in this marriage. And yet, if you read the rest of Hosea, if you took time to do that this week, if you're not real familiar with this story or you think, gosh, that's kind of cool to see that in there, and then you go back and decide to read it, there are parts of this story, and as they go through the sin and judgment cycles, it's unnerving to see the depth of God's anger. And so I want to speak about that for a moment, and in two ways. One, just to give you a lens through which to understand books like Hosea, particularly in the Old Testament. I've found over the years that sometimes a book like Hosea is the kind of thing that causes some people to look at us as followers of Jesus and to say, you're crazy. Who would want to follow a God like that? A, yeah, it's a God like no other. And I'm saying, no, 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 look what happens in this story. This is a God like no other. He reached out to save this woman. Hosea did, and Hosea represents. And some people go, no, 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 you can keep that. Even sometimes within the church, I found people who go, well, I don't really know what to do with that. And so they just kind of go, that's the Old Testament God. I'm going to follow the New Testament God, sweet Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, it's a lot easier over here. And I just want to give you real quick a lens through which to see God's anger and to understand this a little bit and to understand how different he really is. I first of all just want you to see that through the eyes and the experience of ancient people. So we're going to go back a few thousand years. Historians and anthropologists agree that every single people group who've left behind a record of their life had some kind of religious thinking. And it comes out of three great needs. If you go back to ancient times, every group of people had three things they had to master if they wanted their family, their people, their tribe, their clan to live on. You had to figure out food, fighting, and fertility. Okay, real simple. Food, you had to know where your next meal was coming from. Wood, you get the weather and the planting and the harvesting and all that to cooperate. Fertility, are we going to be able to have enough kids to beat the odds? of infant mortality, disease, and sickness, and war, and battle, and all that, and then fighting. When the guys three valleys over come after us for our food or our women, are we going to be able to beat them back and protect ourselves? So food, fertility, and fighting. 
And just knowing those three and understanding this about ancient people, you're going to see these all over the place in the Old Testament. And for good reason, because what began to happen as people were forming societies and lives, uh, they began to, to do something that's fascinating to me. The Psalms, I just counted real quick the other day. Psalm 19, Psalm 36, Psalm 50, 68, 97, 108. I could keep going. I'm not going to take time to show you all these. But just those Psalms right there, in different ways, all reference people looking up to see the character of God in the skies and in the heavens. And it's interesting that when you read about ancient history and the people groups that had their own religions, so often it begins by looking up. Again, if you just look for this in the Old Testament, you'll see it all over the place. People talking about the high places, going up to the temple. Even something like Asherah poles, which feature in different ways for idol worship. Why poles? Because they go up. People were looking to the skies and they began to form ideas about little g gods out there. And all those ideas came down to a couple things. The historian Thomas Cahill says it this way. Ready for this big fancy historian phrase? Impersonal manipulation by means of ritual prescriptions. He said that sums up all these ancient religions. Impersonal manipulation, there's no relationship. Human beings are just trying to manipulate the God and keep them happy. How? By ritual prescriptions. By doing this stuff that was laid out for them by somebody else. And so this is what you got to do to keep the gods happy. You want food for the harvest? Figure out what you got to do to keep your God happy and do it. And if you get the harvest, clearly you're doing it right. But if a storm comes and wipes out all your grain, well, you've blown it. And so early on, there was this idea of what we would call sin. You haven't done what the God wanted you to do. And there's this thing called judgment. The God's angry and he's going to let you know it. Sin and judgment. And this cycle that goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That guides the majority of ancient religion and still guides some religions today. You got to keep the gods happy by doing this stuff. If you fail, watch out because it's going to happen. There's going to be a storm that's going to wipe out your grain or disease that's going to wipe out your kids. Or those guys from three valleys over are going to come and take all your food and your daughters. And into this steps our God. There are large parts of the book of Hosea that would sound very familiar to ancient people because of the sin and judgment cycles. If you could imagine some ancient people standing around the ancient water cooler and meeting for the first time and going, oh, your, your God asks you to do things? Oh, and, and if you don't do them, he gets angry and he does stuff to you? Yeah, that's our God too. That's the way most of the ancients thought. And much of that centered around food, fertility, and fighting, those three things they always wanted. And yet, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, of Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and all the others steps in with something radically different. If you go to Hosea 11, I want you to see this is worth turning to. It's worth highlighting, circling in your Bible. Uh, I shouldn't tell you to write in the Pew Bible but I'm almost there. This is so good. But don't write in the Pew Bible. How can I give you up, Ephraim? Verses 8 and 9 in chapter 11 of Hosea. How can I give you up, Ephraim? That's a nickname for the northern kingdom. How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart 
is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. We see something very different about this God. All the other ancient gods, it's sin and judgment, sin and judgment, sin and judgment. Do you see that through Hosea and other Old Testament books? Yes. But this God adds a third step. Sin, judgment, and then there's something called restoration. There's something called reconciliation. There's something called renewal. And ultimately something called resurrection. All these great RE words that make this so different. Very quickly, uh, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. Adma and Zeboim are two lesser known cities that would get mentioned back in the day in the same breath as Sodom and Gomorrah, two names we know a whole lot more. Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroyed by God. So were these two in that whole story earlier in Old Testament times. And the Hebrew word that described what happened to Adma and Zeboim and Sodom and Gomorrah is the same word that gets translated turned over. In other words, if you go back to Deuteronomy 20, 29, I think it is, 23 or 29, for example, uh, where they're writing about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, the word that says those cities were wiped out, ruined, flattened, changed in an instant. That's the same word God is then using to describe his heart. It is turned over. I've heard Jerry for years at times use this phrase, um, my heart being ruined within me. And it's this same idea that God's heart changes in a moment, ultimately from anger to compassion. There is no other God like this. This is a God unlike any other in ancient times. So with the idea of anger, which is prevalent throughout the book of Hosea, you almost get that taste right out of the gate. Hosea, you're going to go marry this woman who would prove unfaithful, and you don't get a sense that God is real happy about what's going on through chapter 1. And if you go deeper, you're going to find out there's a lot of intensity to his anger and some of the things he says is going to happen. But I want you to understand it's followed so significantly with this sense of compassion, so unique, so unlike any other God. Think a couple things. What does that mean for me in my marriage? And if you're not married, in any relationship, because uh, maybe you're not like Scott Berthel. I'll just So, moment of self-confession. I have found that people can occasionally get on my nerve and be frustrating. My last nerve. Uh, and I can see you guys maybe don't deal with that, but... Um, Occasionally, marriages, that can be difficult and frustrating with siblings. Uh, I'm one of six, so I understood it from early days. Uh, I'm being extremely sarcastic right now. People are frustrating. And oftentimes, the actions of those around us can lead us to anger. And so two things, I think, to understand. I think we need to understand something as we look at God's anger in the book of Hosea. We are made in God's image. I'm designed the way he is. And so 
when we see something like what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter four, and I love how the New American Standard says it. The NIV says, hey, in your anger, do not sin, as though anger is just gonna hit you at some point, and it does. I like how the New American Standard does it a little bit more accurate. It says, be angry, that's okay. Sometimes in Christian circles, we wanna go, oh, you know, don't ever be angry. No, anger is a gift from God. God is a God of justice. Anger is something that helps express that what he wants in the world, his good rise and righteous, righteous life for us is not happening because of evil. He gets angry about that. The anger helps him see what's wrong, helps us see what's wrong. But then he moves to compassion, which is where he actually does something about it. And that is the model for us. To be angry, yet do not sin in our anger. Do not let the sun go down on it. We don't live in it. We have to recognize, as James said, that the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. But we realize something. And so in, in the context of marriage and life together and other relationships, I think a great prayer is, God, help me be like you that my heart would be turned over within me from anger to compassion and that we would look for what John Piper calls future grace. How am I going to see God in the future? Because I think one of the great messages of Hosea is God is always in your future. Gomer, you're at your worst. You've been out with all these other guys. You're now a slave. God is in your future. Yes, there's anger, because wrong is being done, evil is happening, and yet God has moved to compassion. And that's a model for us in our marriages, in those moments of frustration and difficulty, it's to pray and ask, where is God in my future in this? How will that come to pass? And that brings me to the last word, which is harvest. There's a theme that's present in Hosea, and I don't have time to trace it all the way through the entire book, but it's also present throughout all of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. A significant portion of Hosea, again, if you were to take time to read this week, you're going to see a lot about the northern kingdom's relationship with the Canaanite storm god Baal, B-A-A-L. And it's a name that features oftentimes in the Old Testament. And I think, again, at first glance, you wouldn't think, dealing with the people who are dealing with Baal worship would have a lot to say to us about our marriages. I want you to know a couple things about Baal real quick. First of all, if you look at chapter two, I'm just gonna point out a couple of things. Uh, this is God speaking to the people. He said, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. Kind of an odd thing again. Who's Ishi? Who's Baali? Ishi is the Hebrew word for husband. Uh, I want you to understand something about the nation of Israel, when they, the Hebrew nation, when they leave Egypt, they wander in the desert, they finally go into the promised land, they're there, they're meeting other people. And we know that God said, don't get mixed up with their gods. But that began to happen all over the place. The name Baal means Lord or master. So when these people land in the land of Canaan, and they're starting to live there among the Canaanites, and they hear about, oh, you've got a God? Oh, your God asks you to do stuff? And he gets mad if you don't do it? And you call him Baal? What does that mean? Lord, oh. You can start to understand maybe a little bit how they maybe thought, do these guys know our God? 
They call him Lord. They called him Master. And right here, God is working on two layers and saying, "Mm mm-mm, you guys have been mixing me up. You've been calling me by the wrong name. I'm not Baal. Uh, Yes, I am your Lord in the sense of Adonai, but you're going to call me Ishi, which is a husband, which is a loving relationship, and just helping them see something different. We know that earlier in this chapter, uh, verse 5, talking about Again, she, we're not talking Gomer here, but the kingdom of Israel represented by her. She's acted shamefully. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water, my wool and flax, my oil and my drink. They were looking to Baal to provide all these things. And it gets worse. As you trace throughout the book of Hosea, you realize that the nation had started engaging in some of the worst of the practices of Baal worship. Uh, Prostitution in the temple, again, comes back to fertility. Uh, they got even worse. Child sacrifice is written in there. And the reference that even that, to that depth of degree and depravity, the people were combining their worship. The end of it all, I want you to see that sowing and reaping is present throughout Hosea. I like how it's stated in chapter 8. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. They sow the wind, something that's just seemingly empty, but they reap the whirlwind. When we sow something, we plant a seed in the ground. A seed is tiny. When something grows, it bears fruit. We get something much larger. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. These people sowed empty practices, and they reaped destruction. And that's a lot of what this book is about. And this principle of sowing and reaping It features elsewhere in chapter 12. We're reminded that sowing and reaping, it can be positive or it can be negative. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord. Until he comes to rain righteousness on you, you have plowed wickedness, you've reaped injustice, and you've eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your ways and in your numerous warriors. Again, the reference, you got references all over the place there to food and fertility and fighting, all of them. Sowing and reaping is something we do every single day. We sow in our marriages, we sow in our other relationships, we sow in the way we use technology. We're constantly sowing something. The question is, not only what are we sowing, but I want to tilt your thinking farther down the road and have you think about the word harvest. This is, uh, it might be hard to read. This is from a Facebook feed. I saw a thing called Humans of New York, a guy who began years ago taking pictures of people in New York City, and then he'd ask their story. I cut the picture of this guy out, but I just want to read this to you in case you can't see it. He says, I got divorced when I was 64. We had a good run. We were married for 36 years. We're not enemies. We just outgrew each other. When the kids were in their house, in the house, all our focus was on them. But after they left, there just wasn't any reason to keep doing it. We were just living our own lives together. Neither of us was all that interested in changing. So what's the point in staying together? If you talk to most people my age and they're really being honest, they'll tell you that they're dissatisfied with their partner. But then they'll shrug their shoulders and say, what else am I going to do? Because most people can't stand to be alone. My ex-wife and I never had that problem. I saw that, and I was saddened by it. 
And I couldn't help but to think sowing and reaping. Had a conversation on the flip side with a guy this past Friday. Had to go get his passport. And he said, well, you got a passport. Describing he's got five kids, youngest in college, oldest are all adults. And he told me a story of uh, his two oldest kids. They are, are quite well off. They could be doing whatever they wanted to do. They're taking the whole family on a trip uh, at Christmas time because they want the whole family together. And I thought to myself, that's a man who has sown wisely in the life of his family, and he's reaping a great harvest. What's the harvest you want in your marriage? Work backwards from there and think about what needs to be sown. What's the harvest you want in any relationship? What's the harvest you want in your life? You got to work backwards and go, what am I sowing now? And to become intentional again. As I wrap up this morning, I'm just going to read very briefly from a section of chapter 14 of Hosea. I just want you to listen to this. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to do so. It's not going to be on the screen. Again, you'll hear a lot of allusions, uh, a lot of references here to things growing because of what has been planted. God says this, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. I'm starting in verse four in case you want to follow along. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them. Transgressor, transgressors will stumble in them. And as I wrap up this morning, and as uh, John and the crew come back up to move us into communion, my encouragement is that you'll remember you have been equipped in your marriage and in any relationship. You have been equipped in such a way by the same God who equipped Hosea to let his marriage reveal God and the gospel. I want you to understand when anger comes in your life, we have a God who is not simply angry as the ancients were, but a God who, yes, because he's a God of justice, reveals his anger, but moves to compassion to bring restoration. And what we're about to enjoy in the Lord's Supper, the broken bread representing the body of Jesus, the cup representing his blood poured out for us. It captures all those great words, restoration, reconciliation, renewal through the resurrection of our Hosea who came and bought us out of bondage. And finally to remember, um, we're called to sow wisely in this life. So I'm gonna invite us to come to this. I'm gonna pray for us uh, after we wrap up communion and uh, send us out with a blessing. But I encourage you now, and if you are visiting this morning, just wanna remind you, uh, we'd welcome to, if you fill out this visitor card, whether in these next few moments or before you leave this morning, and as well, bring any gifts and offerings um, to do that joyfully, recognizing the joy of the God 
who purchased us back. But let's celebrate the Lord's Supper now. We'll be back in a moment to close us and send us out.